Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I am delighted to say I'm here with Ian Snape. He is the co-founder and CEO of Frontline Mind, and he's also the co-author of Resilience by Design, How to Survive and Thrive in a Complex and Turbulent World. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I got connected to you because you wrote a chapter in the Kenevin at 21 book. Uh, and Dave Snowden, who was the originator of Kenevin or co-originator of, of the Kenevin framework, uh, has been a popular guest on this, this show. Uh, complexity obviously features yeah, heavily in your work. But having just read the book, you've clearly got a vast array of, of, of interests outside of complexity specifically. And, and what with your background, working with CEOs, frontline workers, Marines, you know, you clearly got just a, a wealth of, of life experience that I can't wait to dive into in, in this podcast. And so, uh, yeah, let's start with, um, you know, why this interest in, in resilience, particularly and, and at this time. My, my interest really began around about 10, 10 or 11 years ago when I, I started trying to understand the decision-making processes uh, of people that operate in high-risk, uh, complex, ambiguous uh, environments. Uh, my passions are, are extreme mountaineering and skiing and outdoors activities, uh, but also leading and working in government. And there was, a, there was a bit of a crossover there. And I got fascinated by the decision-making process. Uh, and, and that really led me to resilience. It led me to how do those sorts of people make quality decisions? And I, and I, you know, I really discovered that they're, they're operating from broadly what you'd call a resilient position. Uh, they're not operating from a position of stress or fear, uh, or if there is a bit of that in there, it's working for them, not working against them. Uh, mm. And that, that sort of really led me to understand what are these people doing? How are they putting together their thinking? Uh, what's involved? Right. And I guess the, the premise then for the book is that these people who are able to achieve highly resilient states, that's available for, for anybody? Is that, is that the main premise here? Yeah, pretty much. It can, um, it, most of the techniques that we use can be taught fairly readily. Some people find them more easy to acquire than others. Um, just to give you an example, if we run a workshop around the, 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 the content, the core content in the book, the workshop lasts for three days. Uh, we, might, we might do a small group. We might have, let's say, 16 people in a team. And if we, if we ask some open-ended questions in the first hour, just elicitation of how people do resilience, we'll get about 85% of the content of our book. Now, not, not in detail, not, not in that sort of richness, but you go around the room, everybody's doing a little bit of something. Uh, and we can start to put that together. We can help them really understand how they're doing it because it's usually implicit. It's usually uh, hidden within, within what they do. They don't normally consciously aware of exactly how they do it. We can make it better for them, uh, and we can cross-train within the group, and that's part of the facilitation process. So these are natural skills. It's not, it's not some, you know, you don't, don't need a PhD in, in neuroscience to understand how to do resilience, and, in fact, it's probably having a PhD in neuroscience will probably get in the way of you knowing how to do resilience. So uh, these are all natural, natural things that people can learn and, and can 
and can develop into a very refined and enhanced level. Right. And, and why particularly do you think that this is an important topic you know, right now? Well, I think, I think that there's a lot of confusion about this topic right now. I think there's, there's a misunderstanding that resilience is the ability to just take a beating uh, and that no matter how bad things are in the situation you're in, you've just got to suck it up. And that, that's actually not resilience. That's just stupidity, really. Um, resilience is the ability to, to, to be able to step back, you know, using one metaphor and one technique in the book, to step back and understand your situation and find more choices. You know, one of those choices might be to just get out of the environment completely because it's extraordinarily unhelpful for you or unhealthy. You know, there's this talk at the moment of the great resignation. Well, that, for many of those people, that might be a brilliant resilience strategy, it's taking stock of their lives and going, actually, hang on, I'm not, this is not for me. I'm going to go and do something else. For others, it might be an impulsive decision and maybe not so strategic, uh, if you like. So, so I think resilience... It, for me, it, it underpins uh, everything else that you can build on. It, it underpins high performance, whether you're a sports person, uh, whether you're in business, uh, whether, you, whether you're parenting. Um, I mean, I've got two, two young children. And my word, they, they certainly test my resilience. Uh, so, you know, high-quality parenting comes out of being resilient. You know, losing your, losing your rag and, 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 you know, exploding and shouting at your children, that's not a resilient way to, to do parenting, right? But if you no. can take a deep breath and if you can look at the behavior and go, oh, wow, look at that, you know, um, little Jimmy's having a tantrum on the floor. And if I just step back here for a moment, he'll probably sort it out himself. You know, yeah. little things like that. That's a resilient strategy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I like that idea of it being the basis for kind of everything else. Right. I've never really thought of resilience in those terms. I'd really thought about it in, in terms of, you know, what we lean on when we're under, you know, periods of high stress. But this idea that it's a, a foundation for life, you know, that's an interesting one. Yeah. No, no, I, I can get that. I totally relate to the chart, the children examples. Um, I've got two four and a half year old twin boys. So, uh, ah, yeah. Okay. No, yeah. 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 I, I, I totally get that. Yeah. Um, and also what you said about um, sometimes the best choice might be to remove yourself from the, from the situation. I loved um, Carolyn's story from the book. You know, do, you, do you recall that? I wonder if you might share that with our listeners. Yeah, I think um, Car- Carolyn's you know, remarkably creative and great insight and was, you know, had a very, very tough situation to deal with in a work context to do with a, a, a natural disaster to do with a bushfire and um i, I remember she came in and we'd, we'd done quite a lot of coaching and she'd really really discovered her passion uh was, was not in work anymore uh, and and she came in with this uh diagnosis uh, of depression and anxiety uh and and had been recommended to take medication uh and i i just asked you know well you know, how did you get it? Did you catch it like it was the flu? What, what was going on for you there? Uh, and, uh, and I set her some activities to go and discover exactly when and how she does depression. Uh, and she discovered it was only when she thought about going back to a workplace that she found threatening. Yeah. I mean, uh, and this is, this is surprisingly common. This is not just a one-off. This is, this is really, really common. We have these res- responses in our body, and it usually is in the body, 
Uh, it's not some sort of image or sound. It's usually a felt sensation, and it's a signal. And it's a signal to take action to something. Uh, and, and for her, she was really quickly able to identify exactly what it was. We could isolate down that, that response. And the signal was, don't go back. Go somewhere else, do something else with your life. But that is not a safe place for you to be. It's not an enjoyable or rewarding place for you to be. And although there are consequences for that, you know, she couldn't go back to her workplace and there's all sorts of consequences. She, she made the decision and said, yeah, I've got to move on. Uh, and it's, it's one of many, many examples where people listen to the signals in their body and they move on. Uh, and again, just thinking about some of the demographics, some of the changes, the seismic changes that are happening at the moment in workplaces around the world where people are, are saying enough. I, you know, mostly this is about the relationship they have with their managers or their employers and about unrealistic work, uh, work expectations, just absolutely yeah. unrealistic expectations of what can be achieved. And people are walking and saying, no, I'm not doing it. And, yeah. uh, and that, for many, that's a resilient strategy. And I think there's a really important point here, though. And you mentioned earlier, and it's a really common slip. It's so deeply embedded in the language of, of, our, of the way we talk about workplaces. You talked about a period of high stress. And, and it's like that that's a time bound context or that the environment is, is stressful in some way, but it's not. Stress is this felt response that some people have. For other people, it's a, a time of opportunity in this exact same context. It's how we perceive it and how we internally create our responses to that. So I, I, don't, think, I don't think there's periods of high stress. I think that people might have high stress for a period of time uh, and other people might des describe that as being quite an energizing experience, for example. Uh, they might say, yeah, I'm a bit stressed. And you say, is that good stress or bad stress? And they might go, actually, it's pretty good. I like to be, you know, I like to have that bit of edge. I like to have that bit of yada, 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 whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you, you devote a section of the book to that, you know, how we relate to stress and how we frame it. Uh, and that, yeah, that might be, yeah, I can see that that's part of the, um, part of the context for understanding resilience is our is our story about stress. Um, the other thing I liked about Carolyn's story is that you you had her go walk in nature and just focus on on one sense. Yeah, just just talk a bit, bit about what why that was important and you know the the sort of context for that as an exercise. Oh, this is. Um... I, I believe the originator of this sort of little activity was Carmen Bostick Sinclair. Uh, and I did some training with her many years ago, and, and this is one of the activities that she did. So, uh, you know, let's please acknowledge the source of this one. And it was just a, a really profound experience for me, focusing on one sense at a time and developing uh, an acuity to the world around you by training yourself to be able to switch in to a single uh, channel in the senses uh, and, and deeply absorb the environment around you. But when you do that, a lot of other things happen. A lot of your uh, internal dialogue, the, the worry about the world, a lot of other things just disappear. Uh, and if you do the activity really well, uh, emotions or the, la the labels that we give to the felt sensations often just drop away and there's, there is a no-nothing state where you're just perceiving at the level of the senses. So I, I knew that tasking Carolyn, who loved walking anyway, but, but 
tended to get wrapped up in her own head. I knew that she would experience nature in a way that would um, show her that she actually had no depression at those points in time. She had no experience of depression. And as soon as she had no experience, even for one minute, then the chink is broken. Because this idea, and many people still believe this, that uh, depression in particular is a chemical imbalance in the brain. Well, if that's the case, you would have it 24-7 and it wouldn't modulate because it would be controlled by your chemistry. Now, there might be some people out there that that do have that. I just have never encountered them in the hundreds of people that I've worked with. Uh, So I acknowledge that I've not worked with the entire population, of course, uh, but the people I've worked with have incredible choice and incredible range when they start to understand how these senses are put together into, into a cluster that, that we label with a, with a name, an emotional name. Uh, so it was a great way for her to discover that she had choice and where her attention went dictated whether she felt happy or sad or anxious or depressed or a whole range of really quite intense emotions. So it was a, about training her attention. Uh, and that's what she did very quickly. She she discovered this stuff for herself, really. Yeah, and then and then the insight there was that when she then noticed that the only period she felt depressed was when she was contemplating going back to work, and so I suppose that allowed her to bring that signal into relief, right? Because she'd found a way to not experience that that threat response the rest of the time, and so so she could see it more clearly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, this this response generalizes for people very, very commonly. It becomes an all-consuming part of their life because that's where their attention is. Their attention's on the problem. Uh, We use use another metaphor, uh, particularly in training, where we'll we'll ask people to imagine being on a a ski slope and, and we get them to imagine they're skiing down on a beautiful sunny day and they can imagine the flow. And even if they don't ski, they can imagine the movement and floating down. And then we start to introduce a forest. And as they're skiing through the forest uh, on the first run, we say, uh, where is your attention as, the, as, the tr- you know, as you notice the trees? And we're leading them, of course, to notice the trees. And as they notice the trees, they find that they ski into the trees because our Attention goes uh, and, and orients right? So it's a, it's a metaphor, but it's, it's literally what happens. And then we get them to imagine again, and, and, and for people that ski or people that we might be coaching when we're skiing, when they're skiing, you know, this, is, this becomes real. You say, now imagine you're skiing down the slope again, and this time ski to the light. And the focus is on skiing to the light. And people will find a pathway through all of the problems and the trees if they're oriented towards skiing to the light. And there's a metaphor for having an outcome focus, not a problem focus. Uh, And we talk about that in the book with the problem remedy outcome model and how people have an exquisite understanding of their problems, often without any relationship to what is it that you're looking to do? What are you trying to get out of? And uh, that's where an outcome focus can really help. Yeah, and I noticed that... um the the questions that you were using and they seem to be inspired from clean language which is something we've we've talked about on on the podcast am i getting that right oh absolutely clean language is a uh a next level art form in in coaching and conversations i've got to say it's uh it is at the surface level it is extremely simple there are basically nine questions uh 
to use them in context, to use them with rapport and to use them uh, artfully is extraordinarily helpful, uh, either in a coaching context or a team or a team context. These are questions that allow you to ask something of somebody without leading them uh, in their thinking. Uh, they're called clean because they don't, our stuff doesn't contaminate their answers. Uh, and if, if I, I thoroughly recommend that your readers uh, go and find, find a couple of the really good people in the world uh, who, who, who teach clean language. Uh, we, we acknowledge James and Penny in the book and also Caitlin Walker. Uh, these, they've trained, trained me. And uh, again, I'd like to acknowledge them. They're, they are uh, incredible trainers. And they've highly influenced my approach to resilience. And in fact, uh, in the very first chapter of the book, we allude to the fact that the way that we've uncovered a lot of these patterns of resilience have been through clean language questions. So instead of leading people to, to, to tell us how they might do resilience, that would be, that would be probably colored by our own experiences of how we do it. We ask clean language questions and unpack the metaphors that people naturally give us. And that's how we discovered some of the some of the uh, the strong patterns that people use, uh, and many of those were already known from from other things that we'd done. So we were able to sort of get a bit of a a bit of a flavour for what's most popular. What do people really do uh, under pressure, in complexity, uh, or when the when when the, when things are really high risk or dangerous? You know, what, how how do people do this? So that yeah. was an important methodology for us. Yeah, and we've had Judy Reese on on the show on one episode, and she's one of the you know leading clean practitioners. Judy's um, fantastic as well. Yeah, yeah she's um, yeah. she does some really good stuff. And and applying that in a virtual world, you know, she's got a niche running there uh, yeah. with, with some of that as well. Yeah. So give us an example of of a clean language question you might use to help people understand, you know, how how um, you know how they can be more resilient. Um. You know, just just thinking of what the question you asked there of how people can be more resilient, uh, you could ask the question. You know, what kind of resilient is that resilient? Uh, there's yeah. a as a there's a clean language question, uh, or when you ask that question about the application of clean language, you know, what would you like to have happen? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then what I find is that, and then you get an answer to that, and then what happens, and then what happens, and you sort of take people up this this ladder of outcomes. Um, where yeah, they can... you're, you're absolutely spot on. It, it it does take people up up into outcomes and intentions, uh, and and you can you get an orientation in space and time. So you can go. Uh, there's another really powerful question, which is what happened just before. Uh, and sometimes that you can just see somebody, the light goes on, you go, uh, it's like uh, some incredible revelation when they realize that, that their behavior, their response, what's going on for them in the world, uh, there was something that happened just before that they'd not realized was was pivotal. Uh, and that set off a, a, almost like a chain reaction. So, again, another very, very powerful question. Yeah. Yeah. Um... No, that, that that spreads all the way through the book, and I was sort of noting the the key language questions people could could take away. Um, the other the other story I loved was about uh, you working on breath work with the uh, Marines. <laughs> so, uh, and some of the extraordinary results you got uh, with with Marine uh, trainees. Could you, um, well, first of all, how how do you end up coaching you know Marines on breathing techniques? Um, yeah, before we dive into the, the specific story. Uh, 
I've got to acknowledge Mike there, um, my, my co-author. Mike had done some work on training communications. Uh, the, the, the infantry were having challenges with uh, communications between people that repair uh, vehicles and people that drive vehicles, and there was, there was a, a training project there. So we did some, did some training there. And, and he said, hey, you know, we, we really specialise in resilience and performance. You know, was there something you'd like us to do uh, more broadly? Uh, and through a long conversation, they said, well, you know, one of our biggest challenges is uh, Marines dropping out uh, in the pool tests as they go into into recon training. So recon Marines are, are a, an elite force. Uh, they're a, a, an aquatic uh, special capability. You know, they, they, they describe water as the great leveler. Uh, and they were approaching it really as a stress test. And, and a lot of people were doing that, just that. They were getting stressed with it. Um, so all sorts of examples of that in the training. And, and what we did was we had a mixed cohort uh, of, of people that said, hey, I want to do this training. And uh, there, were, there were all sorts of folks. And we got a baseline on day one. Uh, we chucked them in the pool, said, hold your breath, see how you go. Uh, we didn't give them any training, just hold your breath. We gave them a couple of other challenges, you know, underwater swim, that sort of stuff. Uh, and, then this, and then we said, okay, now come in and do our training. Uh, and we, we taught them how to relax under pressure. We taught them how to do perceptual shifting, so observing yourself from third person taught them how to switch off internal dialogue and experience internal silence. Uh, and a couple of really simple breath hold things might have been 15 minutes of instruction in actually how to do breath hold. That wasn't the real focus of our training. And then we kept repeat testing them. Uh, and I think what was incredible, and, and this shocked some of the participants, some of the, like the, the recon trainer in the room and some of the really senior guys you know, they were already quite good at breath hold. Uh, they could do two minutes, two and a half minutes, you know, reasonably consistently. Some of the, particularly some of the younger Marines, uh, maybe didn't have that sort of confidence. 30 seconds and they're coming up and they're gasping for breath. And we teach them to relax and we teach them to, to be able to be present with that stressor, as it were, as the sort of words that they use. And they were able to just go, actually, I don't have to be stressed here. I'm just, this is a relaxation test. This is just about relaxation. And um, some of those guys got better and better and shot themselves. We have one guy went from 30 seconds to over three minutes. And, you know, he was, he, he learned in the space of a few days, uh, you know, nearly a three and a half minute breath hold. Uh, and he, to see a really young, underconfident Marine, Eyes wide, discovering that he could do this was uh, was amazing for us. It was just so so rewarding. And I've, I've got to say, there were such a great bunch of people to work with. Really engaged, really switched on, asked great questions, and um, yeah, it was a real privilege to work with those guys. Yeah, and I also I made one note that uh, after five minutes of training, one guy had uh, improved his underwater fully clothed swim by one hundred and forty percent. Just just with a tiny amount of training. So, you know, really, I found that very compelling to think of how we could apply that in our own lives. So just a little bit of practice of breath work and we could, you know, be achieving extraordinary new levels of of resilience in our own lives. Yeah, the, um, you know, there's a there's a common pattern with with that guy. And and this has happened twice in the last two weeks with with some clients that I'm working with. uh, And and it's. 
you know, many, many times over. The, the guy did his swim and he failed his test. And he, I'd just like you to imagine that he's, he's in there, he's got, I don't know how many dozens of his, of his buddies watching him, uh, sat by himself on the side of the pool with a towering uh, recon instructor. I mean, these are, these, are, these are very fit, very commanding, uh, you know, military people. They're trainers. They're, uh, you know, they're very impressive, but they're intimidating. And, and he's, he's on the floor and he's almost curled up in a ball and he's dripping wet, fully clothed, and he's just failed, failed big time. All his mates are sat off to the side watching him, and he's, by, he's literally by himself. So you look at that posture, and you think about what's going on for that guy. There's no way he's going to do a knockout swim. There's no way he's going to do that looking like that. And, and any attempt at you know, telling him to do it and telling him to push harder is only going to make it worse. Okay? So we got him there, stood him up. Uh, I got permission or the, I was called over by the instructor and said, hey, if you want to do something, you know, show us what you can do with this kid. So we get him over and I said, hey, I've just been invited to come and help you. Do I have permission to, to coach you for a few minutes so that you can go back in? And he goes, yeah, sure. And uh, I said, first thing I'd really like you to do is I'd like you to change your posture. I said, you look like a drowned rat. And, I said, and you know, we're having a bit of fun. We're getting a bit of laughter. And I get him to just change his posture. I said, okay, shoulders back. No, just. Just like that. So adjust his posture. Said, so "Now breathe." Okay. Now relax. And this is this is a minute. This is quick. Already, he's going to be better. If I didn't say anything else, he's going to be better when he goes in the water. There's no magic here. It's not you know. This is not voodoo or anything. So then we just do some coaching, and I get him to review his own swim from third position. He's looking in, imagining that kid who's just done that swim, and he's watching what it, what he just did. He's in replay. And I go, I just asked him the question, what could that do, guy do better to improve his swim next time? And he knew what he could do. And I said, okay, and I want you, I just pointed out this is about relaxation, to go really slow. He's got all the breath he ever needs. And um, we did a little bit more, you know, there's a bit more to it, but by and large, that was it. And he got in the water and he just shocked everybody because he just kept going. Really slow stroke. He kept it together. And you know where he, you know where he quit? about six inches from the end when he surprised himself because he got to the end and he didn't think he could do it. And he just shot to the surface, like, like he just (laughs) shocked himself, Uh, you know, and everyone was like, Oh, you know, come on, six inches to go. (laughs) He just, he just freaked himself out because he didn't think he, he didn't think he could do it, but he kept together. He did it. It was amazing. Right. 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 So you're combining three techniques there, which I get, which are accessible to all of us. I mean, this comes back to one of your opening statements that this stuff is accessible, right? Consciously changing our posture, focusing on the breath, and then taking a, a third a third person perspective. Yeah, there, I don't know how many coaching conversations begin with that. Like, as I said, I had a couple this week. They were completely different environment. Uh, I had somebody phone up, uh, coaching client started talking to me and I said, can I stop you right there? Uh, I, uh, I said, I know this might sound strange, but I can feel you in my body. I can feel the tension in my chest and you're not breathing. Uh, and I just said, I'd like you to sit up. And, and she just literally went, <gasps> took an enormous breath. And then she just said, oh, it's okay now. I've got clarity. I know I'm doing the right thing. And this is really, really common. People 
are, are, they go down in their posture, they go down in their foveal vision, they focus on the problem. They're not getting a peripheral view of the situation they're in. They're not getting good oxygenation, you know, oxygenated blood to the brain. I mean, simple stuff. Uh, and as soon as they change state, they can often go, actually, that's it. I, I know what I need. Um, so once you learn to calibrate, you know, be able to see in other people whether their posture is resourceful for them. Sometimes you know what's going to happen long before they open the mouth and tell you anything. You just look at them and go, okay, I know what's going on here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and you're well. This is something else you talk about in the book. You're you're uh, you're using the tool of your of your mirrored state, right? You're tuning into the signal that you're getting in your own body, which is mirroring the person in front of you. Absolutely, yeah. It's some yeah. People talk about empathy or emotional intelligence, like um, like it's something you're born with. And and to some extent, you know, people have natural preferences and things they might find easier or harder. Um, the the ability to develop that empathy and that understanding, uh, and I, I, I don't particularly like the word empathy, um, but that experience as if you're in another person's shoes, that's the point of this is can I have an experience as if I'm in your shoes and experiencing your life? Because if that happens, I can then shake that out and I can respond having some appreciation of what's going on for you in your world. And if, if you could have one skill that the world really needs right now, it's a bit of that. If you can go around and you can start thinking, I, I've got an appreciation of what might be going on for you, and you know what? There might be some really simple things I can do to, to help with that. It could be as simple as a conversation or slowing things down or speeding things up or you know, all sorts of stuff, all sorts of compassionate ways of, of, of reacting in the world are possible from that very simple activity. And it can be learned. It can be practiced. And it can be taken to an extraordinary level. You know, we've got elite athletes. Uh, Taekwondo is, I guess, my, uh, my, my pet, uh, pet hobby, I, I suppose. You know, taking elite athletes where they're, uh, they're capturing the, the movement patterns of their opponents and we're getting them to minutely model in this second position all the patterns of play and decision-making and thinking to such a level that they become the other person. And then we switch or we take a training partner and we train them to act like a, an elite, elite player from a different country and they'll come in and they'll mimic so precisely exactly how to fight in that style uh, so that our athletes can learn, out, learn how to take them apart. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very, that's, you know, that's very powerful. And one of the things I do, and I, I don't know if this, this resonates, is sometimes if I, if I see someone with a particular expression on their face, I will make that expression on my face just to get a bit of insight into what they might be feeling. Um, yep. You know, where I can do, do that without freaking them out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, you can also do that just like you've sort of alluded to in, in, in what we call like a micro muscle. So you can, you can model in a way that's so small, it's so subtle, and it can be facial uh, so, or your hands or your, or your body or your movement patterns, or even you can even imitate their voice, but in your head. Uh, and the, the, mus- the, the, the movements can be taken down and compressed to be so small that they won't see you doing it unless they're really, really good at, what, you know, at observing this sort of stuff. People that can do that can see uh, remarkably fine micro-expressions and, and even a conversation that's running in somebody's head 
they'll get an inclination of what that's about when they learn to calibrate really tightly. Wow. That's not common. (laughs) So that, right, that's a form of mind reading, right? Just through the visual cue. Yeah, look, I, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't really go to mind reading, but they, you know, this, I mean, this is, the, this is the basis of tarot reading. This is how they get a sense for what's going on for you. They learn to read your nonverbals and your sub-vocalizations. You know, there's a lot of movement when you're talking in your head. They'd have no, no, no luck with me because mostly I switch off and I go blank and there's no one home. So, you know, but that's, that's, that's an, again, another skill you can learn. But they can pick up really subtle stuff like with their questioning. That's how they do what they do. Uh, it's how illusionists and, and, and manipulators and, uh, you know, uh, power selling and all that sort of stuff, all those manipulative ways of, uh, of getting inside somebody's head, that's what they're doing. It's nonverbal um, sensory acuity taken to a yeah. very fine level. Right. But in terms of us using that for good, in terms of understanding what people are going through and helping them to find their own resilience, that can be a a technique yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah now the other thing i like which another and, and this is what i love about the book right is it, it's just it, it's peppered with very simple techniques that you can like try in a couple of minutes whilst you're reading the book um which i love it's it's such a sort of low bar to start trying stuff because often with these styles of books you know you'll get to the end of the chapter and there are all the things you've got to try and they're all like half an hour long and you're like, Oh God, well, all right. But these are, you know, so that's just something to note. Really, I, I love that. But one of them was uh, the soft tongue. Tell us about the soft tongue. Um, so, I mean, for thousands of years, um, people, uh, yogis, religious practitioners have been looking for ways to um, reach enlightened states or reach flow states or, uh, or experience silence. And there are lots of different sorts of techniques that can do that. Uh, one of the most powerful, and, and, and yogis do sometimes do it in different ways, is to relax your tongue. What we think is happening is that the, when we speak, obviously the tongue moves, but when we speak in our head, it's like the tongue moves a little bit uh, to mimic as if we're speaking out loud. If you stop that movement, and the easiest way to do it is to allow it to go soft into the bottom of your palate, just let it go completely soft, drop in the bottom, and most people experience silence. And when they don't experience silence, the tongue started to move again and their attention's gone. So, again, it can be trained. Uh, and it can go from you, uh, we know people that have never experienced silence in their heads, never, always, constantly talking their voice or other voices and this is a this is common you know this is not this again this is not some mental illness this is part of the human condition uh, and other people have never heard a voice in their head total silence they have no really? idea what you're talking about oh yeah absolute wow. silence yeah and they look well, sort of when you born, describe it. Born, born, born yogis, born enlightened, you know, born in the yeah. stillness <laughs> one, one, one woman in training recently she's looking at everybody and she says oh, I think there's something wrong with me because I don't do that. I don't have any sound in my head. And we're going, well done, congratulations. That's actually really helpful. Most people are trying to shut this stuff off because it just, you know, we call it a left brain interpreter. Well, so we, Michael Gazaniga does that. And, uh, you know, there's this, there's this narrative that often runs and people think that that's their thinking. It's not their thinking. That's the commentary about their thinking. Their thinking is an entirely embodied process. It's felt sensations, images, 
could be could be taste smell as everything put, gets put together and that's actually your thinking and there's a commentary about it now you can think in words as well it's one channel but it's not the only channel it's not the be all and end all so tell us about you you yeah so you, the soft tongue allows you to uh to, to cut this this thought off which allows you to be more present and 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 can get you yeah. out of particular states that you might not want to be in but you said something about it we don't just think in words like explain that well, the I guess there's a, there's a couple of really good books that have studied this from the from the neuroscience of uh, of the way that thinking occurs. But what tends to happen in Western society is that we compartmentalize and we we place an inordinate amount of attention on the left brain interpreter, this left brain part that, that provides a commentary, a rational explanation for everything else that's going on. It could be images. It could be a lucid dream. It could be a waking dream. But this left brain interpreter is trying to rationalize it and make sense of it and give a narrative for it. Uh, or it could be a sensation in your body. It could be a literally a gut feeling, a gut instinct in your gut that is telling you something, but it's in, an, in another language. It's a different kind of communication. So this thing might be trying to make sense of that. Now, if we're if we've got this really strong relationship with our unconscious, then that can be a fantastic dynamic because it can be super supportive. It'll go, hey, look, you know, I've got this feeling, I've got this sensation. What's that for? What's going on? And you get to understand what these signals are about. Or, and again, this is very common in the West, uh, we, we overdo the analysis and go, oh, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a feeling. In my, you know, I've got, I've got butterflies in my stomach, but, you know, everything's going to be okay because I know I can see that it's going to be okay. And you can talk yourself around. That rational brain takes over and it suppresses the unconscious, the, the, the other part of self, you know, which is really doing the thinking. So one of the key things that we're trying to get across in the book is to switch that balance, put it back into some form of, and I'm going to use the word harmony, but I don't necessarily mean harmony. Uh, you want to be, have, a, have a really productive relationship between the conscious and the unconscious, between the, the narrative, the words, and it could be images or it could be felt sensations. You want to <coughs> have all of this working together. Now, I said harmony is not the best word for it because sometimes uh, it can be really productive to have a tension in there. One part of you might have identified something that's a yes and the other part might be saying no. And if you can work out, hey, what's going on here, you might get a better answer than just going, oh, I've got to align everything and make sure it all you know, is all congruent because sometimes there's a good reason for something not being congruent. So, you know, it's a subtle distinction and it's one that I, I think a lot of people have missed when they talk about, oh, is it either this or that? Well, it's actually both. And it's about how they relate and how they work together that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'm now seeing here is that by by softening the tongue, we we stop the verbal. So it, it helps us to be still, but it also allows us to tune into other forms of nonverbal thinking. Is, it, is, that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, and for some people, it's the first time they've ever really listened to another person. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I'm laughing. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, I, I, you know, I, it's like uh, that seems to be a life's work is to get better at listening. But, yeah, so there's a nervous laugh there for me. If you've got a loud internal dialogue running while somebody's talking to you, 
you're probably not really listening to them with your full attention because you've got your own stuff going on. Imagine what it would be like, you know, if you're one of these people that you can just switch all that off and suddenly you're 100% present with what somebody else is telling you. You're not trying to formulate an answer. You're just listening. And when you can do that unconsciously, you'll come up with an amazing response because you'll have been able to listen to what's coming, what's being broadcast in your direction. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's so true that that's, I suppose that's, I suppose what I'm getting here is like, I'm, I'm well aware of this importance of listening and, you know, but I suppose, I suppose what I tend to think of in terms of how we listen better is, you know, how can I turn off the narrative on my bed, but I'm st- in my head, but I'm still sort of using words to try and counter the word cloud in my head. Uh, and what you're saying is, well, no, you could, you could actually just drop into the body and um, it's almost taking a, an oblique approach to it. Don't yeah. use narrative to try and kill narrative. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's this, you know, the multiple ways to get there. You know, flow state is an amazing uh, condition that, that you can induce through flow state games or you can go and do something crazy and most people will, will induce, you know, induce some kind of flow. Uh, or you can just learn to do it with um, adjustments, posture and breathing and, and tongue drops a great way, a great way to get into that. So, again, these can be developed and trained. I, I, I'm doing things now that I absolutely did not do 15 years ago. Sometimes I would have done them hit and miss, but it would have been very unstable. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd certainly experienced a lot of flow, but I didn't know how to switch it on, on command anywhere, you know, in a car, having a conversation with somebody, just being able to drop into a flow state, listen with no internal dialogue and trust myself to give an appropriate response at the end of it uh, as taken deliberate training. Uh, I didn't just wake up with that. Yeah. And as you say, you've now experienced the the quality of your responses have now improved um, by not thinking about the response. <laughs> There's the paradox. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, enormously. I mean, uh, again, just like you can't use a narrative to shut down a narrative, uh, you can't, you can't in, enter flow if you're really trying to enter flow because your attention is on trying, not letting go of, everything else so that you can just be in flow. So sometimes this idea of trying is not very helpful. Yeah. 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 And this seems to link to another quote, which I loved in, in the book um, from Ian McIlchrist, um, author of, of the master and his emissary. And I haven't got the quote um, precisely in front of me, but the basic idea being that we, we want to honor this left brain narrative making machine, but don't let it be the master. Yeah, exactly. And, and for, for your listeners, McGrogor's book is fantastic. It's, you know, he's really, really got the point there. Uh, and I think that, that quote, and it's, it's towards a, the, the sort of two thirds of the way through the book, you know, page 300 and something, I can't remember exactly what it is. You know, he really nails it, which is not, it's not either or. It's about putting it in its place and respecting it. Uh, and, and allowing the, the master and the emissary to work together collaboratively as a team. That's my interpretation of what he said. And I, and I, I think it's easy to gloss over that bit in the book. Uh, it's easy to, to, to sort of, you know, latch onto that, to this idea that, you know, we're overdoing the left, the, the left brain and, and, and the like, and we are. But that balancing sentence is critically important in his work, and I think it's worth paying attention to. So, Yeah, I've, I've actually got it here. I do not underestimate the importance of the left hemisphere's contribution to all that humankind has achieved 
and to all that we are in the everyday sense of the word. In fact, it is because I value it that I say it has to find its proper place so as to fill, fulfill its critically important role. It is a wonderful servant, but a very poor master. <laughs> and I think it's such a powerful quote because so many of us make it our master. Yeah. Um, it, that's one of those quotes. I wish I'd come up with those words. Uh, the best I can do is borrow them and acknowledge them. Uh, just magnificent. And uh, yeah. it, he, he's, that quote summarizes a lot of what we've got running through the book of how you do that. It's not just the, enough to have the quote that says this is important, but there's a lot of how you have to do that. What do you do to do it? Uh, and that's part of the part of this book. Um, and we take that to the next level as we integrate the thinking about individuals and, and individual resilience and, and perceptions to, to the to the perception of the external environment. And particularly, we use the Kinevan framework there. Uh, I've just found that to be a really lovely, simple, uh, at the surface anyway, it's an easy to understand framework for sense making, uh, how we can recognize the sort of ambiguity, the complexity of different environments or different situations. And at the surface, it's really usable, doesn't take very long for you to go, actually, I can get value out of this. And then as you start getting into it, it's, it's more nuanced and it's richer and it builds and it layers. Uh, and I'm still learning uh, about the Kinevin and some of Dave's thinking in there uh, and, and how you can use that from everything from strategy through to, um, you know, I, I did a lot of coaching in the, in the early stages of the pandemic crisis. Uh, and that's one of the things we pulled out a lot, which is saying, hey, guess what? This is what's happening right now. And we know that when this is happening, this is how we should respond, because if we do the others, we won't get a good outcome. So, you know, it's just an incredibly valuable and useful way of referencing that the external context and what we can do in the gap between what we what we experience out there and what we do internally. Uh, and that, you know, we talk about the gap between stimulus and response. Right. Right. And so for some people that may have gone, you know, straight over their head who are not familiar with the Kinevin framework, um, certainly the reference at least. So is, is it, you know, could you spend like a, just a minute or two explaining in your own terms, you know, what, what, what Kinevin is? Yeah, look, there are, there are essentially five domains uh, in Kinevin and, and some of the words have changed a little bit over the years. It's an evolving framework uh, in the, in the bottom right corner, there's the, the domain we call uh, clear or obvious. This is where stuff is just that. It's obvious. Most people will go, oh, yeah, I know what's going on here, and the answer is really simple. Uh, an example might be you get off a plane, uh, you're used to driving the car, and you can tell whether it dri we drive on the left or the right. It's not hard to work out. And in the complicated domain, this, the next one up, top right, it's, it's, there's more going on. This might be you know, some quite, quite detailed mechanical systems. It might be building cars in a factory. You know, it's still predictable, but there's a lot going on. You need to be an expert to understand the system. Uh, and, you know, it, it lends itself to analysis. And then there's another domain, which is com complexity. Uh, and in complexity, it is not predictable in the sense of cause and effect. Uh, and that's because there are feedback loops, uh, a, a murmuring of birds, uh, sweeping through the sky. They've got a pattern. Uh, and if you're a hawk, you might be, be able to predict some of the movements in the patterns, uh, but it's complex. You can't tell where the birds are going to be in an hour's time. 
but there's there are patterns there. Now, a lot of a lot of human behavior is in complex patterns are often repeated, and once you get to know them, and this is what I was talking about with the Olympic Taekwondo athletes, you know that there's a repeating pattern, and it's somewhat predictable. However, it's still got got an open system. You know, something might change. The pattern might be there for ten years. And then one day, somebody just does something different. So it's not perfectly predictable. Bottom left corner is chaos. Uh, Speaks for itself. No patterns, no patternicity, uh, usually fast pace uh, change. And in the middle is a really important domain uh, of being confused. And there are two types of confused. Uh, There's a type of confused when you know that you're confused, which is a good thing. You go, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know what's going on here. That's great. And then the other bit, which is, you don't know that you're confused, and that's really dangerous. Uh, so, so you've got five, basically five domains, uh, uh, and, and you know, just thinking about it, there's there's lots and lots of ways you can you can use this stuff. I use it a lot in in, in business coaching all the time, uh, but but even as something as simple as planning a holiday. Uh, so my my wife's a doctor, uh, and she she loves things that are you know engaging and, and interesting. And if we go on holiday, she likes things to be reasonably well planned out. She likes to know when we're, when we're traveling, generally eight to 10 months ahead of it. She likes to know where we're going to land. Where's the first hotel? Where are we going the second night, the third night? What are we going there for? What's this, what sort of sites are we going to stay? She might even book a restaurant, right? So it's, it's kind of a pretty well-planned holiday. She's asking me this months and months out, and I'm going, I've no idea. Why don't we just, why don't we just get a plane nearer the time and we'll go somewhere and we'll see what the weather's doing. You know, let's go to Europe, but I don't know where we're going to be because I don't know where the snow's going to be good. So I'm, I love that sort of more complex, you know, highly fluid, ambiguous domain. So, you know, that can make for, a, for an interesting conversation. How do we have a bit of both? Um, and, and so it is in business and so it is in, in the way that people like to get jobs and like people like to work. People like, have what I call their preferred habitat. It could be highly ordered or it could be highly chaotic or it could be complex. They've got what I call the extended foraging zone. The environments they don't mind, they don't mind going in for a while. They do it if, if it pays well enough. They don't really like it. And then they've got the bits where they're going, actually, this is going to kill me if I stay out here. The inhospitable zone could be either end of that spectrum. Too much change, too much chaos, or too much order, too much structure. Just depends. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, love, the, I love the way you brought it out. And one of the things that, one of the things I like about the book is that you then relate, especially operating in the complex domain, to what we can do with our bodies to be more effective and face with complexity. And I'm not sure, you know, I think, you know, you're an author right now or, or as co-authors doing, doing something quite important there um, that, you know, perhaps we're not seeing elsewhere in the literature, which I really appreciated. Um, the other thing I liked was, you know, your explication of inductive, deductive and abductive thinking. And I wonder if we could sort of relate that as well to understanding, you know, how complex our world is, because I, I personally think this is the best ever illustration of abductive reason, reasoning that I've read in the book. Um, so I wonder if we could just talk about that a little bit and why that's important. So, you know, there's, there's a big body of literature out there on, on exactly what these are. And, and, I, and I have to admit, I've compressed this right down into something that I think people can use. Uh, so I've simplified it uh, quite, quite a lot. And I've, I've taken a position on particularly abduction as a way of improving communication amongst teams 
uh, and amongst people, uh, individuals, and also as a way of deliberately uh, almost bootstrapping creative thinking, abductive thinking. So we we sort of break down and 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 I, when when we put this out to the to the editor, the only editors said, "Ah, oh, I think you should chop all this section out. It's it's pretty deep." Uh, and, and it's like, you know, well, it's, it's a bit, you know, I, I'm not sure they're going to get this. And I said, oh, it's got to stay. I'm not, I'm going to fight tooth and nail for this one. I'll, I'll have a go at reworking it, right? So we've tried to make it accessible to people um, who maybe don't, you know, not, not thinking about those sort of formal logical ways of thinking. But what I wanted to get to people was that if you've got a particular problem, in the domain that you're operating in now, it could be your work, for example, or family or, or whatever it is. If you can understand how to sort of structure your thinking process to go up in logical types, logical levels, up in logical levels and across in logical type, then you can start to go and explore other environments that might have the answer to your problem. And then there's a process of bringing that back. Now, serendipity or spontaneously just having a bright idea, oh, I could do this. What's usually happened is unconsciously we've gone off searching for a, for a solution and we found one way over there in a different environment and we bring it back. But we don't know what the process is because we've just gone, oh, it's a bright idea. When you step it down, usually there's been a connection. It might have been an experience that led to an experience or you've seen a colour or something's led your, your thinking process and suddenly you've gone bing. I know what it is, but you can do it deliberately and you can train for it. And this is really interesting. You can do, um, there's, a, there's an activity drill in there that trains abductive thinking. Uh, and I've done this hundreds of times with people and it's amazing what they discover when you deliberately force super fast abductive thinking uh, to a problem. They come up with the weirdest solutions, but they're going to work uh, because they've just made these connections and you've led them, you, you lead them often through metaphor, but the, the brain is tracking for that solution as it goes. Uh, it's remarkable. It's worth it. Worth having a go. Lots of fun. Yeah. And, and for people, again, who are not familiar with the terms, could you just give us, um, you know, what do we mean by inductive thinking? What do we mean by deductive thinking? And then what do we mean by abductive thinking and like why the abductive thinking is, is important? So let's think of it this way as uh, deductive, you're going down and you're sort of getting into the details. I mean, it's a really simple version. Uh, inductive, you tend to go up. Uh, and this is the thing where you, uh, I, and I talk, talk about my, in fact, my favorite, my favorite piece in the whole book is, I think it's pages 100 and 101, uh, where we talk about the deductivist turkey. Uh, well, this is it. This is one of my favorites. <laughs> exactly what I'd highlighted, one of my favorite pages of the book. Yeah, um, that was um, – it, it talks in there about the distinctions as applied to, as applied to a turkey. Uh, and, and there's a well-known phrase or metaphor of, of the inductivist uh, turkey who every day gets fed and learns through induction that every day I'm going to get fed. And then they extrapolate that into a theory that I'm going to get fed every day uh, until the point where they get slaughtered for whatever whatever significant uh, holiday event, uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever it might be, uh, and that's well known as the inductivist turkey. Uh, and I make a play on this in the in, in you know those sort of pages where we go into the deductivist turkey, 
who would be analysing the number of grains and the dynamics of, uh, you know, of, of turkey, turkey, the turkey population in the pen. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that often happens in science where we're going down and down and down and we're sort of getting all these theories. We're not really integrating anything or really appreciating everything that's going around or, in fact, how that relates to broader context, which is where abduction comes in, which is that ability to step outside of your immediate uh, analytical thinking or your inductivist thinking uh, and make connections. Uh, and in this case, we link a whole range of the techniques into a sort of fun story about the, abductive, the, the abductionist turkey who survives. So, and, and that was interesting in that I, I struggled for about a week to, to wrap that chapter up. I really struggled for a week. Uh, and then eventually I, I got to a position where I was so tired with it and so bored with it and so fed up with it. Uh, I could, I just, I, I kind of stopped trying. Uh, and I went to bed with the intention of give me, give me some lead by the time I wake up. I, I, want, I need this solved tonight. So that was a direct instruction to my unconscious. And I woke up in the morning at about six and ran downstairs with a pen. And that, those two pages came out in about 30 minutes. So it was wow. really fast and it all happened while I was sleeping and it was all through abduction. Yeah. Yeah. And do you mind me sharing the sort of punchline to the story? I know it's in the book, but do you want me to? No, no. So, so the abductivist Turkey looks over at the chickens and asks himself the question, why do these, why do these chickens get killed every six weeks? Right. So he's, he's stepped out of his immediate, you know, uh, parameters and, and switched to a different context. And then the insight he's got from looking over there and said, oh, well, hang on, hang on, you know, maybe we're going to suffer the same fate. And, you know, the inductivist and the deductivist over here are both wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, uh, I, I do think there's a lot of that goes on. Uh, and what, what I mean by that is I think that there's a lot of people in environments where they're suffering or they're going to suffer. And they're thinking about their environment, but they're not really thinking outside the square. They're not thinking, they're not deploying some of those empathy skills with other people, those looking around the world and going, hey, look, that's happening in that country over there. Oh, well, you know, it's, it's not happening. It's not going to affect me because it's not in my country. But in fact, the same patterns do, the same patterns of tyranny, the same patterns of exploitation. You know, we don't take personal responsibility for something that's happening over there. We don't have the, the connection to that. But, in fact, it can happen to us. And when we start thinking differently and more holistically, uh, it, I think it gives us a lot more opportunities and choices uh, about how we respond in our environments and, and how we might sort of operate more of a, a, as in a connected way, in a connected whole. So we start talking in this book a bit about ecosystems and a little bit, bit about connections, uh, but that's something to follow up in, in, a, in another, another writing. Yeah, it reminds me actually of a guest on the podcast, um, Jack. Uh, oh, I'm blacking on his center, but he, 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 one of the things he would encourage with his staff um, is to uh, go to conferences, but not in their industry. Right? Go, oh, go to, right. go, you know, just as another, that, you know, potentially another way to simulate abductive thinking, right? Is, is That's get out brilliant. of your context. Brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. If, um, you know, uh, I've worked with some some 
some big utilities as an example, uh, they might have particular problems, but where they go, they deliberately go and connect with a completely different random utility. It's got nothing to do with what they're, they're doing. Or they go out to, to the space industry or they go out somewhere else and they'll go and have a, they'll go and make some connections and say, hey, we've got some problems. We'd love to know what you guys would do with this. What a brilliant way of working. A brilliant yeah. way of just putting your hand up and saying, hey, we've got something. We'd love to hear ideas from you guys way over there. What would you do? Yeah, yeah. Really, no, it, it really opens up. Yeah. And I think because it's a similar process, similar problem, but in a different domain, you, you, you get to sort of let go of all of your normal assumptions and look at the problem afresh. I think that's it. Um, and you might find this with coaching is that the same, you, you're coaching a, across a number of sectors. So you get to join dots, you know, the similar sectors. And we hold um, executive roundtables often. And, and what we'll find is that people often value being brought together with people from totally different sectors. Um, and I'm just thinking now that that is, again, another way, not that I was consciously doing it, of stimulating abductive thinking. That's exactly what you're doing. And it's, you know, it, it is absolutely fantastic. And you're right. And, you know, some of what we're doing with, with Frontline Mind is providing uh, common, a common platform, a common way of communicating, common way of thinking, uh, but then connecting people who apply those in radically different ways. Uh, and we're forming networks, even even to do with recovery in, fr- in frontline agencies, setting up peer support networks, you know, linking police, uh, prison and ambulance uh, and healthcare and nurses so that they can they can share knowledge of how to recover from a critical incident or, um, you know, a mass casualty event or whatever it might be. So getting people to connect and, and share uh, is extremely resilient uh, for them as individuals, teams, and, and as organizations, and, and for society, actually. Yeah, yeah, no, very good. Good. Well, okay, well, um, we've been going for an hour now, and uh, I'm sure we could go for another hour. You know, there's, there's so much. It's like a Bible, this book. You, 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 it's, it's interesting that you sort of seem to go deep but and broad, right? You know, you, you seem to take quite deep dives in these different um sort of vectors of resilience, you might say, and you cover, you know, a, a huge swathe of ground. Yeah, well, yeah, thank you. Um, that was that was very much the intention. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to bridge out from what I discovered from practitioners uh, and from the training and experiences I'd had, uh, and really deep dive into the science. Uh, and, and, and pretty well connect to everything I could find that had ever gone before that, you know, where those, those often those nuggets have been identified, but then often forgotten or not, not really brought into a practical whole. So that was part of the, part of the, the intention. And, and as you said, it was, it was designed to be a manual. You could sit it on your coffee table, you could open up a page and enjoy one page, or you could use it to, to, to go and solve a problem in your life uh, or apply it in a team context or, I really have this practical, this practical uh, manual to keep referring to. Yeah, and a, and a beautiful book. I mean, that's the other thing; it's just full of pictures and beautifully illustrated. It's quite an unusual in that respect. Yeah, just just worth note. Was that intentional to use a lot of of pictures? Yeah, we um, uh, our our agent when we we put together a pitch for this book, it was beautifully crafted pitch. It was all illustrated. It was in full color. You know, it really showed some snapshots of the book as exactly as we wanted it to be like looking like that. Uh, And he got 16 rejections by, by publishers saying it's going to be too expensive to produce. We can't touch it. It's full color. 
Uh, and then we finally got him high enough up in Wiley. Uh, and, uh, and the Wiley people said, okay, we love it. We'll have it. We, we really want to support this. We'll do it. Um, you got, you got, you guys go and knock your socks off. Um, so uh, again, big shout out to Wiley. Um, they've been incredible. Um, without their support, this book would not be there. No, no question. Brilliant. No. Um, Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you once again, Ian. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, I beseech anybody with an interest in how they can become more resilient to go, go buy the book. Uh, yeah. And if you want to engage actively with Ian, then check out uh, front frontline mind and we'll, we'll put looks to both the book uh, and frontline mind into the description. Uh, oh, fantastic. Thank you for the, for the questions. I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed your, your, your thinking there and, and, and where your attention had gone. And, and I'm really glad that you love the wild turkey because that is my favorite bit. <laughs> Maybe that's going to make you famous here, the abductivist turkey. <laughs> yeah. All right. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, once again. And uh, well, enjoy, enjoy your evening. I know it's late for you now, uh, down under. So, uh, yeah. All right. Thanks again. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.